Welcome to the Advancing Research Podcast Takeover with me, Lisa Walker, Campaigns Lead at Neuroendocrine Cancer UK. Our new Advancing Research campaign is all about funding and supporting research that will help those with neuroendocrine cancer both today and in the future. And in this podcast, we talk all things research. I'm delighted today to be joined by Andy Hall, Chief Scientific Officer at RareCan, an organization which helps to improve outcomes for people with rare forms of cancer. Andy started his career as a haematologist and then became a lab-based researcher specializing in the biology of cancers, particularly those which occur in children. So first of all, hi Andy, thank you so much for joining me. Well thanks, it's a, it's a real pleasure to, uh, to be invited to take part. I'm really looking forward to Uh, having our conversation about the importance of research. First of all, I'm really keen to kind of hear more about your experience with basic research. But firstly, I guess just to kick it off, I'd love to hear kind of your opinion as to why why is research so important? Why is this something we should do? So my involvement in research goes back a long time. So um, I thought I'd explain why I got into it. And that explains, I think, why I think research is so important. So I trained as a haematologist, as you mentioned, and I saw patients with rare diseases in in the blood system. And I felt at the time that that there was gaps in our knowledge about how to approach those diseases. I saw patients who, as it happened, were a similar sort of age to me in my early 20s, um, uh, presenting with, with devastating diseases where treatments were less than adequate. And I felt that there was uh, more that could be done in that area and became intrigued in understanding how research worked and decided to do six months of research and never went back actually to seeing patients um, because I was so wrapped up in in the value that that the research could bring to patients presenting in the clinic. Um, And we know so much more now than we did when I started I hasten to add very little of that is due to my own personal efforts. It's due to the immense amount of efforts that's happened in laboratories around the world. So I firmly believe the more you know about a cancer, the more you can do to diagnose it accurately, prevent it if you can, and treat it if you must. Absolutely. No, I think that's a, that's a really good answer that kind of covers it. And I think um, many people kind of echo that. And that, But it's, it's so interesting that you went into it for a little bit or what you thought was going to be a little bit, but actually you kind of was so kind of, I guess, excited by the mm. kind of developments and things that you you could see happening because I suppose ultimately for all of us, we're looking to, I mean, cure would be amazing, but also offer better treatments or mm. options for people um, at the very least, I suppose. And did you, um, I think one thing we sometimes feel as part of a rarer cancer is that perhaps there's less research done Um, for our community and in that area and I just wondered is that something you saw reflected in your practice and do you kind of have an opinion on the importance of doing research for the kind of less common diseases or even cancers? Yes so I was fortunate in some ways because my interest was in childhood cancers and I never say that there's overfunding of any research but I could see over the fence there was less than optimal funding for other forms of rare cancer occurring maybe in adults or maybe in diseases which hadn't been so um, much the focus as as the hematological ones have done. And as I progressed in Newcastle in my career, I started working with colleagues who were working on 
um, rare cancers which hadn't had the received that attention in the past. So there's an interesting di the digression really between the funding opportunities that there are and research is an expensive business um, and the desire of researchers to look into rarer cancers. From a scientific point of view, rare cancers are often very intriguing because why are they rare? Why do they occur at all? And sometimes they occur for very specific reasons and understanding those specific reasons can in turn give ideas about very specific treatments. So the curiosity is there. Um, we'll come on to some of the practical problems, but one of the practical problems that does exist, um, non-scientific ones, is the funding issue. So a, a lot of the really good uh, uh, research in this country is supported by charities such as your own. Um, and if it's supported by charities, it requires lots of people to donate money. And of course, if you've got a common cancer, there are more people who are in that position to donate. And so that drives the agenda to a certain extent of the large um, charity organisations and the smaller charities get left out. So to answer your question, absolutely, they, uh, there is a need to fill that gap. Um, and the good news is that scientists are very happy to begin to fill that gap if they're given the opportunity to do so. Yeah, no, that that is good news indeed, and it's um it's really interesting you talk about that because as always there is that kind of dichotomy between the curiosity or even um desire I suppose of kind of research to look into something, but then as you say there is practicalities um, around funding of which is key to do that because um, research is very expensive, um, so that kind of has to be taken into account, and I think this is um is great I think for our community this is kind of a new venture for us to kind of try and learn more and understand more about research and I suppose what exactly is it like where is that mm. money going what happens which I think sometimes um isn't necessarily very clear to kind of th th those of us that are non-medics of which I of course include myself um which I suppose links on quite nicely for me to ask you a little bit about basic research and you know what what exactly is that and I suppose what was it that you were doing when you kind of left your post as a haematologist and um that, that interested you so much yes yeah, so so I'll, I'll break that into two parts and what is basic research so um scientists can be very purist about this and they they can say that basic research has not got no clear um benefit in mind it's just pursuit of knowledge and um, there are people who, who do do that, and we owe a lot to them. So I'll give you a, a, an example. There, was, there have been scientists, it must be, it must be 30 years ago now, who became very interested in the bacteria that grow in hot springs, right? And you think, well, what possible benefit to mankind does that have? And of course, they didn't do it thinking there was a benefit to mankind. They did it because it was interesting. But actually out of that came an understanding of a particular group of enzymes that work at high temperature, so the hot spring, high temperature. And actually those enzymes now are the cornerstone of something that most people in this country are now very familiar with, PCR. So PCR was something that a minority of people would know what it was, but actually PCR works using those enzymes. We know now that PCR was essential for getting on top of COVID. So um, you don't know from a really basic point of view where the benefit's going to be. And then there's a sliding, there's a sort of continuum between that very basic sort of research and at the other end, very, very applied research. 
So most of the, what we call basic research really has got a, a goal in mind. And so I think when we're talking about um, particular diseases, the goal in mind of everybody is to improve diagnosis, prevention and treatment. And so that's what my understanding of, of basic research is. It's more actually a little bit of application because I wanted to do something positive with a particular goal in mind. So the second part was, I think, was what 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 was I interested in, and and uh, yeah. So so um, my own interest in was was in childhood cancers, and in particular, understanding why some patients didn't respond as well as others. So if you give you take ten children with uh, a form of leukemia, and you give um, them the same treatment, eight will respond quite well because it's a good place to be. Um, research-wise, but two won't. What was it about those two that didn't make them respond? And then actually at the other end of the scale, there's the, one of the 10 will respond very well with very little treatment. So there's a variation in response to the same amount of treatment. So I was interested in the, the biological factors which controlled that. So why didn't drugs work? Why, did drug, why didn't drugs work? Why did sometimes they did work? And understanding those differences between us in, 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 in that control that. And how exactly are you able to understand that? Like, what were you measuring or looking at to yeah. kind of see why they did or didn't work? Yeah, so so I must say, because I, I represent the sort of white coat end of, of, <laughs> of research, um, there, the, the research spectrum covers anything you care to mention, from psychology to sociology to um, understanding um, delivery of medicines to formulations of medicines to chemists to increasingly mathematicians and you know so so it's it's become a very broad church of expertise but i'm very i was very much in the white coat molecular biology image of, of, of a scientist so the tools that we used were were basically we took um, reagents in a test tube or we took cells that grow outside the body and occasionally we had to use animal, uh, re animals in, for research as well, very reluctantly and in very controlled situations. And we used models. In other words, we took things into a laboratory to try and mimic what was actually happening in patients. But all the time, it's really important to go back to patients and see if that's true or not, because otherwise you just very get very good at treating leukemia in a mouse, which might be good for mice, but it's not particularly good for us. So you always have to go back. And, and say, Am I, is this correct? Does this reflect what's happening in, in patients? So actually obtaining samples from patients and data from patients directly is really important. And that, that also is something that, that I became very aware of early on, is the idea you do research in partnership with patients. So we don't do research on patients, you do with patients. And that includes when they donate samples for research. They have a right to know what those samples are gonna be used for, how they're going to be used, what the outcome of that research is. And I think that's an important component. But I was definitely a white, uh, you know, a big white machines, white coats, the sort of lab, you know, close your eyes, imagine a lab, I was in one of those. <laughs> that's yeah. good. And I think that that's definitely a picture a lot of us can imagine. And I, I think you talking about partnership with patients, that's, um, that I mean, that is vital because also, um, aside from the fact, as you say, it shouldn't happen to patients. I think patients are experiencing it. They're kind of going through um, mm. that disease. And of course, I guess 
um, ensuring that kind of research is focused on things that will help them and help what they believe they need is is really mm. critical. Um, and so that's so that's really interesting. So in in your example of what you were doing, was it a case of kind of, I suppose, sitting down with the child and and the parents, I imagine, and just explaining what you were doing and maybe asking mm. if you could use some of their blood to then take it forward from mice and feeding back is was that the practicality yeah. of it okay. so so if you're involved with any research which involves patients directly obviously but even their tissues then you do need to have ethical approval to do that and we have an excellent sort of research ethics uh, system in this country so it, patients the research ethics committee's job is to represent the patient in assessing the value of a project and what they'll do is they'll look at the sort of things you're proposing to see if it's reasonable, but they'll also insist that you have in place informed consent to do what you're doing. And you can trivialise informed consent and think it's a bureaucratic process, which is just a bit of a nuisance. But actually, ethics committees are really keen that you don't do it that way. Do you explain in terms that can be understood, readily understood by somebody, um, what you plan to do, why you want to do it, what benefit it might have, what consequences it might have. Now, you might think that if you're a white coat person in a lab, your consequences to the patient are non-existent, but that's not true. Because a lot of what you do these days in labs, like the one I was in, is genetic research. So you're looking at the DNA, the thing that controls all our proteins and all our um, bodily functions, and seeing how that was altered in cancer, because it normally usually often is but if you're starting to do that then that can have implications for the patient particularly if that mutation that abnormality in the dna has occurred um, in the family of that person which is rare very rare but does occur sometimes so what you're doing often does have an implication so you need to explain and get the, the patient on board in understanding and and if they don't want to do it they don't want to do it an interesting example is the animal experiments. When I first when I first started, it was quite often that you didn't ask, you didn't specify that you were going to use animals in your research, and that was you know nobody nobody mentioned it. But actually now ethics committees say you must tell the person who donates that tissue for research that this might happen and ask if they're content for that to happen. And I thought oh, I can't do that. <laughs> People will get very upset. Um, but actually, if you explain it, about 5% of people say, no, uh, I understand why you want to do it, but that crosses a line for me and I don't want to do it. And the others would say, thank you for asking, under the circumstances, as long as it's done carefully regulated way, uh, we're, we're happy to do that. So it's a question of really being open and, and responsive to what people want. Yeah, and I, I think that openness is so important. And also, actually, as you were talking about, like the expectation um, so almost to try and minimise surprises, I suppose, for people as to why you're doing it and what could happen. And as you say, the consequences, they might not always be positive. Mm. But I think that that kind of helps people manage and understand if they're aware of that. Um, I guess moving on a bit in terms of, I suppose, impact. I mean, ideally, we're all doing research to to make a difference, to have a change and, and, and obviously an, an improvement, a positive change. In terms of, I guess, some of the, the white coat research, as you're calling it. Um, What's the kind of the impact and change that you're hoping to see in and have seen in clinical practice? Yes, yeah, so so impact has become really important. Um, 
a lot of you know, a lot of academic research in universities is driven by um, what you publish, um, what comes out in learned journals. But actually, it's now uh, increasingly important um, to demonstrate that what you're trying to do has an impact. Now, that impact can be quite uh, far down the line, or it can be quite close. Excuse me. <coughs> so I've, I've um, been very fortunate to see colleagues have research which had real impact um, on what they've done. So I work with a colleague, a brilliant colleague, who was looking at childhood leukemia. Her particular interest was looking at chromosomes. And so she noticed in her research that some children with a common form of leukemia have a particular chromosomal abnormality. And she worked out that those patients did particularly badly with the standard treatment, but very well if the treatment was altered in a certain way by looking at her data. And as a direct consequence of her research, it's now accepted that if patients have that abnormality, they get the treatment that she predicted would be successful. And that has increased their chances of surviving by you know, several fold. So you can see quite a direct line sometimes between what you do in a lab and what happens. Other colleagues working on drug development, in other words, the, the, the discovering and development of new ways of, 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 of tackling cancer, were very important in discovering a drug called PARP inhibitors, which are now commonly used um, in the treatment of certain forms of breast cancer, for example, by things that were actually done in a research lab, funded by um, charities, led to the discovery of a drug, which was then taken forward by drug companies, because you need that heft to be able to do it, and is now, is now leading to quite significant improvements in survival in certain diseases. So it does happen. And if you if you hang around in a lab long enough, you will see it happening. Yeah, I mean, that's amazing. And I think, and I guess that's some of what we perhaps sometimes term as, I suppose, personal medicine today, yes. um, where it's, I guess, being able to know in advance if a specific drug is likely or less likely to work on someone. And of course, I mean, you, you can't quantify in any way how huge that impact will be for an individual. Um, and their family and everything else. So that that must have been so exciting to kind of see it on the on the cellular level, and then I suppose follow mm. it through to kind of literally know what what drug to choose. And um, and I believe there's a lot of research currently still going on in that area for kind of medicines in the future, so that medicines best fit a person's body. Um, although I imagine, given the complexity of of a human body, that is a huge undertaking when you look across all the many diseases that there are. Yes, indeed. So we're in the area of, era of precision medicine. So the original hope of researchers going back 20, 30, 40 years was that cancer would be like a bacterial infection because uh, there'd been the huge success of antibiotics. And we must remember that before antibiotics, infectious disease was kind of a major killer. Now we take it for granted. And they thought, OK, that's worked well for bacteria surely it will work well for cancer, okay? And the, the problem is that no two cancers, literally no two cancers are the same. So unlike bacteria, where although bacteria will change, they are broadly the same, you know, wherever you are, um, the cancer kind of is different and it's a, it's a moving target as well. So 
the the genes inside cancer often become very unstable and they will they will adapt and change so if you throw a particular drug at them they will have in amongst their population of cancer cells quite often a cell which will will sort of succeed in growing past that so it's all to do with precision now so it's understanding as much as you can about an individual's cancer and saying for that particular person then this particular treatment should be successful. That presents all sorts of challenges um, across the board in terms of precision diagnosis to precede that precision cancer. The development of precision drugs to be able to use in those people and the affording of it, actually. So is it going to be affordable? Um, So, But it's very exciting because it does mean that you've now got a very uneven picture when you've got a, a cancer What's the diagnosis? What's the prognosis for that cancer? It depends. It depends what precise genetics often of that cancer will be. And in some cases, there's something you can do about it. In other cases, there's still work to be done to find out the best treatment. So the era of the blockbuster um, is is gone as far as cancer is concerned. I mean, that does sound unbelievably complex, but also unbelievably exciting for the potential of um, as you say, because each cancer is different, to be able to kind of treat each cancer individually in that way. Um, I mean, obviously, that would kind of transform, you know, how it's managed. And it's exciting to be um, or to know that these kind of investigations and research is taking place. Um, I mean, that's on a on a from a research point of view, that is it's fascinating because it's it's I guess it's connecting the dots and seeing it from the lab research and move forward and understanding a bit about where we are now and with medicines and yeah there was a time when blockbusters were felt to be the pinnacle and actually I think it's probably good and reassuring for many people to to know um, that's not the pinnacle there's a long way forward because obviously they didn't work on everyone in the same way Mm. so it's um it's an exciting time for research. I guess we'd all like it if it could happen a bit faster, but that is the nature of the beast. And of course, mm. um, I suppose going back to your first example with the hot springs and research, I suppose some of it is we almost don't even know we need to know it until mm. we discover something that can can then be used in a different way, which I guess must also be challenging. Um, and I just wondered, in, in terms of that um, more random research, it, does that start literally because someone somewhere will just be interested in how something works and then they just find it out and then apply it elsewhere? So, so there's, I mean, research, research boils down into sort of several sort of layers, if you like. So there's, there's, there's a lot of us, and I would count myself as, as that, who make small incremental changes. So um, if you, re, if you regard research is a jigsaw puzzle I was very much the person who was doing the the, the sky and the, the dull bits of the jigsaw puzzle and it was important to do it but you know I wasn't on the hay wane in the middle um, but then you've got people who are very much disruptors who look who stand back and and um, sort of say okay well, way we're looking at this is is not quite a right and they have a sort of there's a lurch forward in thinking so so to take take that uh, an example of that um, until recently, people thought of cancer as being a big collection of pretty much identical cells. Right? And then someone sort of said, no, that's not true. What's going on is within each of within those cancers, there are lots of little sort of clones of cells, little groups of cells with slightly different characteristics. And that what they call heterogeneity, 
is really, really important. And that was actually quite a lurch forward. So the, within the community, there's one or two people who are able to stand back and sort of say, ah, we're all going, you know, we're not all going in the right direction here. There's another direction to be going in. So, so it isn't, and then what tends to happen is everybody else charges behind it. So <laughs> it tends to swerve about a bit following these more um, the basically cleverer people who can stand back and assimilate. So there's also the phenomenon of lumping and splitting. So there, there's a there's a lumping which goes on and says, okay, there's a new idea of looking at this, and then gradually that gets split and split and split, and then somebody else comes and lumps it all together. So, so the the whole way that science is organised can be quite bewildering to the outsider, um, and everybody says more research needs to be done, <laughs> which is always the case. Um, so, so in some ways, those those ideas arise through discussions, conversations, reading the literature, in the shower, <laughs> on a walk. Um, you know, it, it's actually not, it's not necessarily sort of very logical. Okay, well, this or this or this or this. It's more, there's more uh, art in it than, than yeah. people perhaps think. Yeah, I suppose that's the whole, um, well, medicine is as much an art as a science. And oh, I suppose yeah. that's very reflected here. Um and it is fascinating because just hearing you speak, you're just making me realise there's, you know, it's that that quest for understanding, I suppose, that we have across many things. But certainly in medicine, um, that, you know, progress has been unbelievable over the last few decades and so on. But I suppose there is so much more for us to learn um, and so much more research to be done. That has um, that's been fascinating. Um, and I might draw the first part of our conversation to a close here. Um, but um I've learned a lot actually listening to you and it's just it's so it's so interesting as well just hearing hearing how it goes through but also some of the, the the art side of it where you know just something perhaps a bit more random throws up a new area that suddenly we can learn so much from that so thank you so much for joining me thank you if you have enjoyed this podcast please subscribe to not just any cancer series wherever you listen to your podcast and please do leave a review